let's look at this crazy text that we have, which I find amazingly wonderful, as a corrective for a lot of how we live today. It's on page 15 of your packet or your book. If you don't have a packet, I have one. And we're going to stop in our text to learn Jewishly by backing up to the source it comes from when we need to do that. Okay? Because Jewishly, nobody knows all of this. All of us, rabbis, great scholars come to a line. We find out, oh, this is taken from the Talmud, but we don't know that story. So the Jewish way of studying is that you stop and you go open a Talmud and you read the story in the Talmud. Then you come back to the text you're dealing with. This is Jewish associative, crazy, amazing learning. So we're going to start, and where we need to stop to educate ourselves on the text that we don't know, we'll do that. So, Bert, start for us, will you? I assume in the English. <laughs> of this, of Jeremy's piece. Oh, right? So, I'm sorry. Hey, no worries. It's, I am amidst the exile, Ezekiel 1.1. The I, the interior essential self, whether of individual or community, can only be revealed in accordance with its purity and sanctity. The inner identity can be revealed only in proportion to its heavenly strength, soaked in the pure light of heavenly radiance burning within. All right, let's stop there. Okay. I am, essentially, we're going to quote it. Uh, Ezekiel, I am, and I'm going to change the language here, I am an exile. <coughs> and the reason I changed the Ezekiel, Ezekiel language to this is because this really is the theme of the piece we're dealing with. I am an exile. Who's the I? Us. Hmm? Us. Us, the pure essential self. Normally, in Jewish language, when we look at Jewish texts, we're going to have, Rick, welcome, a double entendre. What's the other I here? Any guesses? God. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Edelstein. The other I who's in exile is God. So... I am an exile resonates at lots of levels. That's what we're going to see. I am an exile. Who's I? We're going to see that. And then we're going to have to define what exile is. And if we're starting with I am an exile, where do you think the text is eventually going to need to go? Where is it going to go from there? Where would you go from there? How to get out of exile. How to get out of exile. And what's getting out of exile, Sarah? Connecting. Connecting. Coming home. Do we have a hand out for Rick? Yes, we do. Here. I've got some here. Oh. So we have this idea of exile, which is going to have to be directed towards coming home. Right? That. Wow. We have to. We're not going to end in exile. Are you kidding? How would it be a spiritual teaching? We're all in exile. That's it. That's like Sartre or like Nietzsche or like somebody's like, we're all in exile. We're all going to be estranged forever and we're estranged from ourselves and the rest of the universe and that's how it is and oh well. 
right? That is not Jewish spirituality. Linda? What is Ezekiel? Is that Ezekiel? One of the prophets? Right. It's okay. not in, in Torah, five books Torah. It's in Torah writ large, okay. scripture. Like the, the entire corpus of you know, what we consider to be um, biblical. The Bible contains more than the five books, and we rarely get to them. Right. And this is not a new problem. At Bar and Bat Mitzvahs, you, know, you have the reading from the Torah, and then often you have the kid do what's called what? What's the Haftarah. What does that mean? Haftarah. What is, what is that? Addition. Addition. An appendage. An appendage. An appendix. Right? Haftarah. From the Hebrew verb, lefatel. Lefatel. To conclude. Haftarah means the conclusion. Lefater, to conclude. So the concluding reading is a reading outside of the five books because when they came back from Babylonian exile, they already were going, what's Ezekiel? Your question was exactly the question they asked right after the Babylonian exile. Right? They were exiled, the temple was destroyed, they got exiled to Babylonia. Fifty years later, they were allowed to come back. Already, they did not know, what, what's Ezekiel? What, Jeremiah? Is that ours? Song of Songs? So they added the rabbis, haftam, a conclusion to the reading of Torah, to try to give people an opportunity to hear some of their other, um, what, what do you call it when you make it um, part of the Bible? What's the verb? You canonize it. So they wanted they, they wanted to give people knowledge of some of the other parts of the canon. So do those stories necessarily chronologically follow no. Exodus? No. So they can be commentary or they are not commentary, uh, but some of the like Psalms. Psalms is part of the canon. It predates Leviticus. It predates Deuteronomy. Wow. Psalms is some of the oldest material we have. Not all of it, but some of it. So um, it even you know, is the same age as some of the older parts of Genesis. Um, is Haftarah chosen uh, specifically to be meaningful in relation Sarah, to how we love you. Exactly. The rabbis look at the Torah portion. They try to find a dominant theme in the Torah portion, and then they look at the rest of the canon and say, you know, what else in the, in the rest of the canon, the later canon, and some circumstances later, often, you know, like, what's, what speaks to that? So if you've got Sukkot and the, you know, tabernacle and whatever, then you're going to bring in Solomon's first temple. Right, the dedication of the tabernacle, you're going to bring in the reading from, from kings about Solomon dedicating the first temple. So a lot of our commentary, which is different, right, talking about those texts, talks about, okay, what's the connection? And there's lots of rich stuff there about, wait a minute, like why this haftarah for this Torah portion? How does that connect? Wait, so, all right. So, wait, wait, how did we... Oh, what you asked me, what is Ezekiel? Okay, so Ezekiel is one of the prophets. So this, 
This statement comes from Ezekiel. I am in exile. That's the theme of our text. It's going to explore it in many different ways. Who is the I? We're going to get that in many different ways, from the self to the people to the universe to the cosmos to God, God's self. And then always we have to, if we're Jewish, have a way home. We're just not going to leave it at Nietzsche or Sartre. Ah, that's how it is. It's dark. It's awful. It's meaningless. We don't ever leave it there as Jews, right? So I am essentially in exile. So who is I? And by the way, who's I who's writing this? It's Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook. Rabbi Cook, um, from his work called Orot HaKodesh, right? The Holy Lights. All right, so who's the I in, in his first exposition of I. Who is I? <laughs> the interior, essential self, whether of individual or community. The interior, essential self can only be revealed in accordance with its purity and sanctity. The inner identity, and remember, of an individual or of KI, can be revealed only in proportion to its heavenly strength, soaked in the pure light of heavenly radiance burning within. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> well, you were thinking the same thing. Is Rothschild commenting on this Ezekiel passage, though? or Because he doesn't mention it in his piece. So Roth Cook is saying the I, who's the I? The I is the interior essential self of me or of us. And now he's going to talk about how do we even how do we even know who anything about that I? Anything at all. What the only way we can know anything about that is revealed in proportion to its heavenly strength, soaked in the pure light of heavenly radiance burning within. <laughs> Lois is like, really? No, I right. read the whole thing this, this afternoon. I was just like, really? It's so, dropping. Right. So here, the beauty is we're going to come back to this question again, and we're all going to go, of course. Right, you know, so that's the good news. The promise of every one of these texts when we study it together is we read it and go, huh? And we come out of it going, Wow. A chassid for because sure. 100%. 100%. 100%. These are, most of these are chassidic texts. All right. So something about the inner true essence of I, whether it's the I of Amy or the I of K-I, <laughs> can only be known somehow, right, in relationship to the pure light of the heavenly radiance burning within it. All right. Okay, so we'll just accept that for now and go on. Will you say that again, please? Yes, so the, the, the essence, the inner essential I can only be known, whether it's me individually or us as a community, can, the I of the community can only be known in relation to its Pure light of heavenly radiance burning within it. 
So, so if that's true, if, if the essential, so if it's saying already a statement, the I of me, Amy, or the I, essential I of K-I, is soaked in supernal, heavenly radiance. So what do you think this means? Huh? That you don't know that. Because the, the I is always radiant. Always. That's why we're going to start with, but we're in exile. Well, that's not exactly what the text says. <laughs> the text really? Says, because I think there's a gap between the I of I and the I of Hashem. All right, so let's go there. Let's go there. We're in exile because... Take one of each of these, Fleeny, and take this text if you don't have it. The text we're on is Seeking the Sacred Self. We and our ancestors sinned. The first, so somebody read this. Somebody read the English, but we and our ancestors sinned. But we and our ancestors sinned. The first Adam sinned when he became alienated from himself returned to the council of the serpent and destroyed himself. He became unable to respond to the divine question, where are you? For he did not know himself and his essential identity eluded him. Israel sinned by worshiping alien gods, whoring after their seductions, abandoning its own identity and deserting the good. Okay. So how do we come to this place of exile? This not Connecting, not knowing anymore, our own essential, holy, radiant I, because of sin. So I just want to ask you to suspend for a minute your Western Christian-influenced minds of what baggage the word sin carries. Just, just if you can just for a minute, I know it's hard, but let's just not go to where, where other traditions go with sin. Stay within the Jewish tradition. Sin is a missing of the mark, right? Uh, an aiming for true, but you miss. Okay, so wrongdoing of some kind. Adam, our first human being, sinned when he became alienated from himself. What does that mean? Alienated from himself. He didn't believe in himself anymore. He didn't believe in himself anymore. What didn't he believe about himself anymore? He didn't have confidence that he could be a good person, so he just did crazy stuff. He didn't believe he could be good. Or just losing yourself, losing your, you know, whether it's your morals or your standards. Losing your morals and your standards. He forgot he was godly. He forgot he was created in God's image. He forgot he was godly. So the first act of going into exile from 100% you know, harmony with the divine radiance within each of us, being truly an I, the I that is at home, the I goes into exile when we become alienated by sin from that knowing. Chicken and egg, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Very good, very good. What causes Adam to sin? Is it because he became alienated? 
right? So th- these are, they, they are absolutely related. Alienation and sin, are, are Rob Cook are saying, are intimately and importantly related to each other. All right, so... Because he turned to the council of the serpent, right? Who said, don't listen to that moral authority. Look, this is really good. This is good. The fruit is good. It looks good. It's going to give you good powers. This is good. Was the snake lying? No. The snake was not lying. The snake was telling the truth. This is yummy. <laughs> this will be good. Right? And it is in direct opposition to what Adam knows he's been told is what he's supposed to do. None of us in this room can possibly relate to that, right? Right? right. So the situation of exile is illustrated when God asks Adam in the Garden of Eden, Ayeka, where are you? Ayeka. And Adam cannot respond, Hineni, here I am. When God calls Avraham, Avraham, he says, Hineni. When God speaks to Moshe, Hineni, here I am which implies readiness to serve, readiness to be fully present. Adam cannot answer, Ayeka, where are you? For he did not know himself, and his essential identity eluded him. So that is the individual level, right, of how wrongdoing, and we're going to get an unpacking of what that means in a little bit, um, alienates us from self or our alienation from self causes more kinds of you know things that we do that then further alienates us from ourselves our essential selves which is what this whole text is about so that's the individual level what about the people Israel it sinned by worshiping alien gods whoring after their seductions right this goes back to the serpent this looks really good This is going to be really good if you eat it. Really good. And it's going to give you insights, right, and experiences that will trip you out. (laughs) The tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So you'll become more like God. The snake did not lie. So what I want to get at is it's not delusion. It's, It's actual fact, Israel didn't sin by worshiping a made-up God. It doesn't say gods that don't exist, does it? What does he say? Alien gods. So we've got Adam, the individual, and then we have the people, Israel. Both are going to experience exile. How does Adam and Chava experience exile? From Eden. They experience exile from Eden. How does Israel experience exile? Exile in Babylonia. Babylonia and then Rome. Mm -hmm. Right? So so both are going to experience exile. It's going to be, for him, worked back into, of course, that's an exile from 
So the people Israel, how did that happen to them? They worshipped, give me other words for alien. Foreign. Foreign, good. As gods they had not known. Gods they had not known. Says Torah. It doesn't say wrong, made up, non-existent, fake. All it says is foreign, alien, not known or experienced by you. Not authentic to you. And he's going to define idolatry in a few minutes in a way that I think is gorgeous. But that's seductive. That can be very seductive, right? I don't know about you, but I would love to genuflect. I would love this stuff big time. Why? Concretizing, maybe? Ritualizing in a very personal form? I don't know. But the Catholic ritual, wow, does that speak to me. Kneeling, love that. A statue to kneel to, love that. Right? It's very seductive. It's, and there's nothing wrong with it. Is what, is what, I'm, what I love about where this goes is there's nothing wrong with that as a legitimate religious expression. It's alien and foreign to you, you Israelite. That's not, you're falling into something else. It's not into relationship to the I that is God. God within you and within your people. As your people has experienced it, you're going, you're whoring after some other people's experience. You don't get to do that. You don't get to smudge your house. Native Americans do that. You can't just take from them what's their experience and co-opt it and do it in your house and call it authentic? That's what Jews, that's what Christians do about us. What, what, what do we care? We're studying Jewish texts. All right, so... So he became... All right, so someone read at the land sinned. Rabbi, let's look at those last two words. Which two words? Abandoning its own identity. Yes. That's not you, you Jews. You're just moved away. You just went into exile right there. When you moved yeah. Abandoning your... That's not you. But that's a big deal. I mean, you're, you're, you're not worshiping God as he's been instructing you to do for so long. Now you're worshiping other things. You're abandoning your own. You're abandoning your own people's experience of what divinity shows up looking like amidst a people. You may like Amy Bernstein, the Catholic form, really a lot. You don't get to do it, though, if you're going to remain part of the Jewish people and seek after its authentic eye. You you can admire, but you, you can't go there. Because then you desert, or what did you say, that pointing up, deserting the good of our experience. Because you don't know from that other experience. The land sinned. That's interesting. The land sinned. 
How did that happen? Denying its essence. Oh, someone didn't read this yet, did they? All right, somebody want to read here? The English? The land sinned, denying its essence, letting its strength wither, pursuing ulterior ends, looking towards externalities. It did not give forth all the goodness within itself, such that the taste of the tree itself would have been like the taste of the fruit. The moon complained and lost track of its inner orbit, lost the true wealth of rejoicing in its own lot, and dreamed instead of receiving exterior, exterior regal glory, Babylonian Talmud. So the world goes sinking in the obliteration of identity of every individual and every collective. Okay, so the land sinned, denying its own essence, Letting its strength wither, pursuing ulterior ends and looking toward externalities. It did not give forth all the goodness within itself, such that the taste of the tree itself would have been like the taste of the fruit. What the heck does that mean? Well, you have to look at the footnote. Because that will send you to, guess what? It will send you to, yes, commentary on Genesis. So take this paper. Hmm? I handed it out in separate pages, hopefully. Reflections of readers. Yeah? And we learn, because this is what you do. You stop your study in Jewish text work, and you go back to the source that they're quoting. You have to, or you cannot understand what they're saying. So let's go back, and I'm giving you already a commentary on that source because whatever, it was easier. In the account of creation, the earth is commanded by God in Genesis to bring forth vegetation specifically. So how does that, how does that read, vegetation, in Genesis 1.11? Fruit trees yielding fruit. And the verse concludes with it was so. Right? So the trees, fruit trees bearing fruit, and it was so. But the next verse... Verse 12 says, the earth did bring forth vegetation, but instead of fruit trees yielding fruit, verse 12 says, trees yielding fruit. How could that be? Why isn't it the same? So the commentary is that there's a superfluous adjective fruit trees in verse 11. Why doesn't it just say fruit? Trees bearing fruit in verse 11. Why does it say fruit trees bearing fruit? And the second time he says trees bearing fruit. There's a disconnect here. Torah never, right, has anything happen for accident, God forbid. So it must mean that originally the trees were intended to be fruit themselves. And they bore fruit. You could eat the tree itself. But something happened. Something changed, and the earth withheld some of its goodness, and now they're just trees with dried up bark that bear fruit. The land sinned. The land withheld something that it was supposed to bring to fruition. <laughs> All right. So... Right, right. 
very smart to do that because otherwise we would have eaten all the trees and there wouldn't be any more fruit. We would have eaten them this. Okay, so maybe the earth knew something. The moon complained and lost track of its inner orbit, lost the true wealth of rejoicing in its own lot, and then dreamed instead of receiving exterior regal glory. How do we know that? We are given that it comes from the Babylonian Talmud, Chulin 60, page B. We won't go through it in the Hebrew. I'll spare you. And God made the two great lights. That's what we have in Breshit. That's what we have in Genesis. But later it says, the great light and the lesser light. So how can that be? How can Genesis say the two great lights? We know it could have just said two lights, two great lights. If it says the two great lights, it means they're the same. Because we see a parallel somewhere else in the Bible where when it says the two something, it means they're identical. So if they're identical, how can it later be the greater light and the lesser light? Something changed from the original plan that God had of two equal lights in the sky. What happened? The moon said before the Holy One, Master of the universe, is it possible for two rulers to share one crown? God said to her, go and diminish yourself. What happened? What happened? The moon said what? I want to be number one. Moon said, somebody's got to be number one. You can't rule the sky and share one crown. That will not work. So what's God's answer? If you're the one who's complaining that two equal lights can't share the sky, that one has to be the ruler, guess what? You just lost. Make me choose between you and guess which one I won't choose. Right? So you can read the rest yourself at home. But that's the Midrash from the Talmud that talks about, so again, the cosmos itself had a plan for two great lights, but it, it got contentious. And so it was supposed to be two lights in the sky, and now the moon is the lesser light. It has no light of its own. It only reflects the light of the sun. And what does it do? Waxes and wanes. It wasn't supposed to. This is its punishment. It keeps getting diminished as it keeps arguing with God. So the arguing with God is, uh, is the error. I don't like that. Well, okay, so but I, I love that, that you went right there. I'm going to give you an ability to sleep really well tonight. It ends with the sacrifice on the new moon. The language used about it, Sarah, is different from other sacrifices. And it, suggest, it can be read to suggest, and it's here, that it's a sacrifice for God. Not for God, but for God. The sacrifice, the sin sacrifice is brought for God because God sinned by punishing the moon. Because the moon had a point. And she was right. And she got punished. And God has to bring a sacrifice every new moon because what does the moon look like at the new moon? 
no, nothing, right? Dark or a sliver, if that. So when the moon is at its darkest, a sacrifice has to be brought for God, who diminished her. So now you can sleep. Didn't it also say something about um, like kind of elitism, like having to be like what it reminds me of is you know are the Jews the God's chosen people or not? Is every path legitimate or not? Like once you say I'm the one, doesn't God save you? Isn't that a little bit of a sin of? That's what I hear. The moon is kind of committing a sin of trying to be better than. I mean, th- that's what the text suggests, that, sh- that the moon's not, the one who says, wait a minute, two of us? Sin, but then you're saying it's okay to say that, so is it okay or not okay? So I think Maybe what Sarah's point is, is wait a minute. Whether the moon is right or not, aren't we the w- people who names itself the ones who wrestle with God? Like, aren't we the challengers all the time of the divine? She didn't like it. It's not... In her Jewish kishkas, it was sitting uneasily that, wait, the moon gets punished for saying, what? Two equal things in the sky. Right? So it's yes and yes. It's cheeky to ask the question, and God shouldn't have reacted like that. But also what it says later in the text is the problem with the question is that you are, if God is in everything and everything is God, so both lights are God, and if you're saying no, but I'm separating us, we're not the same, I'm, I have an individual self that's separate from you that I want to push ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you, when the moon went into exile by thinking in those terms. Yes, that's, it, thank you, yes. That's exactly why he brings it, I think. So it's not really about sin as being a The problem. land went into exile from itself when it withheld something, mm-hmm. and the moon went into exile from its true relationship to the essential eye of the moon when it challenged, meaning, I want to wear the crown. There can't be two rabbis of equal status here. I want to be different. I want, it's more than different. I mean, I want to be different and better. I want to be more. Exactly. All right. Whoa. Yes? It just said God sinned, and that just flew out here and just passed. That easily? That, that's, that's intense. Can you explain that one? If God is supposed to be perfect, here this text has God sinning and needing a sacrifice so, to do teshuvah. So yes. So let's look at the very last part of this Talmud passage. Seeing that she was not appeased. Four words in from almost the bottom of the paragraph of the Talmud passage. Fourth line out. Got it? Seeing that she was not appeased, meaning the moon, after all these discussions, the whole. Yareach is feminine. Hebrew is a gendered language. Yareach is always feminine. 100%. Seeing that, but yes, of course, it's not to be missed. Thank you for pointing it out, right? It's not to be missed the gender of who gets diminished. Let's be clear. That's what I was pointing out. Oh, yes, 100%. So the Holy One said, because why isn't the son who says, I want to be more? And God would say, okay. If it's boy and girl, right? Like, so seeing that she was not appeased, the Holy One said, Bring a sacrificial atonement for me that I diminished the moon. 
This is what Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said. What is different about the ram of the new moon that is offered, quote, for God, Ladonai? Said the Holy One, this ram shall be an atonement for me that I diminished the moon. Kapara. This shall be kapara on what I did in diminishing the Arach, says God. But this is also Talmud, so this isn't Torah. This is just rabbis making up a... I mean, we're not supposed to believe that <coughs> oh, anybody was thinking that this is what happened, and this explains anything. This is just stories being told to make a point, right? Is that different from Torah being stories that were being told? Well, how people approach it is different. I mean, depending on... What does kapara mean? I mean, the idea is... Atonement. So that's not sin. It, no, that's, it's an offering that's for atonement for sin. This doesn't mean shame either. No. No. Okay. No. Okay. The implication here is that God sinned and needs a kapara for that which becomes the ram of the new moon. So when it's the minutes of the new moon, is that? That's when the ram is called for, sacrificed ladonai, which. If you know Hebrew, it's a very lovely grammatical play that Ladonai usually doesn't mean to, to God. It means God's. God's sacrifice. Does that make sense? Like, of God. It's a sacrifice of God, not to God. But it, anyway. So, you know, you, you could argue this a step further. And maybe there should have been a moon and a sun that was in the plan itself. And that was what? In the plan itself. Before the Reishi. 100% is where he's going to go. 100%. Exactly. Good anticipation. That's exactly where he's going. Um, or maybe not him. Maybe I read it somewhere else. But, but it's, it's absolutely that that's built into the whole business. Because how could the moon defy God's will? Really? To have a will of its own and defy. How could the trees decide not to do what God said? It's built into creation, the imperfection that results in exile. Because that is our ultimate purpose, is to overcome the state of being exiled from our true selves. That is the human experience, and so it has to be built into the universe itself. Is the, gender, is the gender of son male? Yes. It sounds like a kind of prototype for the Jewish family in the beginning. Yeah, in a patriarchy, for sure. For sure. Speak. <coughs> all this uh, tradition, the fruit trees are just the trees. That the, the Torah never has a mistake. That's the rabbis lifting up Torah as the blueprint of the universe, right? As 100% meaningful on every single level beyond the simple reading, beyond the Abraham went to Georgia, right? You know, you, that, that, that stops to be meaningful at some point. To just study that over and over again? What does it mean he went? What do we mean by Georgia exactly? Right? We chose to read as a people everything we know 
back into Torah. So for them, they say, it's the blueprint of the universe. It is absolutely divinely revealed. Therefore, Abraham went down to Georgia can't mean he just went down to Georgia. Right. What kind of a divine revelation would that be? Right. So it's, it's crazy circular reasoning that enables us to take the Torah out of that box 3,000 years later and read it. So a Christian can have a typo, but they're not us. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry? There's three rabbis standing there teaching this class that are reconstructionists. And you're telling me that all three of you would get the same impressions of what we're doing tonight? No. Okay, because I'm just so confused. Okay. So, no. Well, I mean, this is my, this is my interpretation of what his text is saying and what then Jeremy's commentary told me and then my own knowledge of, right, Talmud and associative learning and no, no group so are ever going to have... Editorial. I'm not even talking about Orthodox or Reformed. I'm just talking about Reconstructionism. Have ten Reconstructionist rabbis right here. And you're all going to have your own editorializing of it. Have you ever Where taken a class from three different yoga instructors? <laughs> instructors? No. But... Okay. I've taken ballet from I can't tell you how many teachers. Did I have the same experience of a plie with each of them? I did not. The plie remained the same. The instruction on some level remained the same, but the way they taught it, what they experienced about that, what they conveyed through that, what they thought it should be, what, what it challenged in them and in us was different with each and teacher. And it's like us all being in the audience of a play. We all have yes. our own interpretation. Yes. And guess what? I'm not the one teaching this class. I'm the one facilitating the learning of this group. So my learning and what I take from this class is different than if I taught this tomorrow morning to another group. This happens all the time. I teach Friday morning, and then I teach that same text Saturday morning before the bar mitzvah. Do you think it's the same class? Do you think they I get have different life experience if they're reacting and you're reacting? Gorgeous. Yes. Okay. Now, now, is he saying basically a concept that we could all kind of agree he's saying? Yeah. But the nuances of what that means for us? That's going to change based on who's sitting at the table, which is the gorgeousness of this, right? It, it, that's why it lives. Just keep this in mind as we go forward in this class tonight. All I kept reading in it today was everyone should think in terms of Reconstructionism. But it's all within us to believe in. Everybody should be on that page. Which is why I love this text. Okay. I mean, ultimately, so that's, that, what that, I that's where we're going. I mean, that, that's what I love about this text. Okay. Exactly. Yes? So just to summarize. <laughs> to summarize so far. Is that when I read this, I thought that by introducing the whole notion of hierarchy, that one had to be above the other, this is kind of a fleeing from the authentic self and a kind of exile. Yes. And then this business, though, about God sinning, are you saying that there's a strain that we can get to where it was all intended to be this way originally? Right. And, part of that, and God punished the moon for that. Constructionist idea of like this interaction with God in creating the universe. That's about. Yes and yes. And interacting with this text. We can also say, I hate that paragraph, get rid of it. Cut it out of my book, chuck it, I'm done. Yeah, no, I like You know, which is fine too. When you start to think that way, you're getting an exile from the part of you that's connected to the divine. I don't like the part about. God's sin because, and then that's. He's supposed to be perfect. Yeah, I mean, not even perfect, but 
It's just maybe it's too much of a personal God. You know, God. Right, personification of God, yeah. But Bert was really into it, so we went there. <laughs> no, but I, right, because it's. There, there are, Cause well, that's we pretty chutzpah to say God sinned and needs to bring a sacrifice every month? That I don't really find. That's intense. You, you, I think it's fine to argue with God. I think it's, so uh, it's kind of nice. <laughs> because uh, it, it gives us a model that, uh, that includes ourselves that we can relate to. Like when we're kids, we think, you know, our parents know everything and they're perfect. Yeah. And then we become parents and we know that's true. And I like it. And the ultimate question on some level, the only reason I'm going to push back just a little bit, the ultimate question is always, if God is perfect and all good, where does evil come from? Yeah. So I think what I do like about this text is that it suggests already within divinity, there's an element of sin. that It's already there in even God. And there's a part of me that goes, well, of course. Because if God is the essence of the universe, the universe includes wrongdoing and bad things. And Well, then of course it has to originate in God. Where else would it originate? Outside of God? What's outside of God if God is everything? Right? So anyway, I don't want to go there, but I'm saying there's a part of me that likes it for that. Like the... But in terms of fleeing the going into exile, you're getting out of touch with the part of divinity that is the good part, not the part that's <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That God has to return also. God has to do Kaparada return also to the good part of God. Okay, but it doesn't work for you. It's totally good. We're moving on. So I think where where are we? Learned teachers. Learned teachers come along. Somebody want to go there? Learned teachers come along looking at externalities. We already read this, right? Did we? Not this part. I don't remember this. Not this part. I remember the word externalities. That was in my paragraph. Oh, okay. Distracting others from their identities and adding straw to the fire, giving vinegar to those dying of thirst, fattening up the minds and the hearts with all sorts of external things. And the eye fades from memory more and more. And since there is no I, there can be no him or her. And right. certainly no you. So what is that talking about? I think it's going on today. It's like you're so pulled into hedonism, you're forgetting how to be ethical. So learned teachers come along. Looking at externalities, distracting others from their true identities. Where is that happening? Religious school. Religious school, Lori Krause. How is it happening in religious school? Or in synagogues. In synagogues, God forbid. How is it happening there? If the focus is on how to behave and how to follow laws and how to light a candle. Mm -hmm. And if that's what we're teaching our kids and we're never talking to them about the fact that they have the divine in them and how do they stay in touch with the divine, not get distracted by externalities and all that kind of stuff, which we don't talk about that. So what happens even, Khalila Khalila, in our religious schools and in our synagogues and in Orthodox religious schools. So this by Cook himself, who's a Jewish professional, 
right, says we're doing it to our kids. Learned teachers are adding straw to that fire. They are feeding vinegar to the thirsty. Hungry souls come looking for a way to connect to their authentic divine eye. And we teach them long division. We teach them, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Not that learning is bad or wrong, but I got a kid. And I've got a creative, amazing, deep, fantastic kid who is miserable most of the time in school. So I give her medication called Ritalin so that she can attend to a boring factory model of education. Homeschool. <laughs> that I medicate my child so that she can sit through what is torture for the curious deep, spiritual, creative eye. It is mind-numbing. It is giving vinegar to the thirsty. We do that to our kids every day in this country. We do it downstairs. I hate to admit it. Because it's what we know. This is, this is what This is what we do. Rabbi Carrie now is starting to do Torah study with the um, sixth graders, and she says they come alive. When they can read the Torah and fill in the spaces from their own experience, they start really getting into it and enjoying it. But it's, it's like a recent revelation that she's doing it. It's, it's like, why wasn't that? Well, you know what? We're not going to go there. Why wasn't it? I, we, there's lectures and research data out the wazoo about why has it been. I try not to go there because then I get really depressed. Um, but we're coming back to where do they find the eye, the essential eye bathed and soaked in heavenly glory and radiance when they can bring their own authentic selves to illuminate a passage of Torah. Yes. Any of us come alive, don't we? Look at me. I'm not this animated when I'm in the grocery store. Yes, you are. Okay, well, sometimes. Yeah, I would be surprised if you were. <laughs> but right, wait, that's where we come alive. That, that's where that inner essence starts to glow, right? And catch the rest of us on fire is when we can do exactly that. And we don't give them the opportunity nearly enough. Well, because there's scary things in the Torah. Like, you have to go in the room with Dina. Okay, we're so going to have that conversation. <laughs> we are so, I mean, they already did. We're having that conversation. Will you meet me this week? We have to have that conversation. I was so unhappy when I heard about that. Oh, my God. What happened? So you have to educate me. Okay, so, and the eye fades from memory more and more. Look at a three-year-old. Do you think they have any problem accessing the authentic eye that is bathed in the radiance of the divine? No. Right? But subject them to teachers. (laughs) Right, And and the eye fades from memory more and more. And I'm not trashing teachers, I swear. I'm trashing our education system, which I stand by. And since there is no I, there can be no her or him. And certainly then, no you. Why? Where's the you come from? 
Oh, well, I might be taking this the wrong way, but I, I, when I read that the first time, I was just thinking about how they say there's no I in team. But, you know, it's just, no, really, the idea that, like, if we're only thinking of us first or I first, then we can't be part of the community. We can't help other people. We can't be a godly person. Um, maybe I'm... So maybe you bring up a good way, point. Because there's a distinction to be made here between this I mm -hmm. and this I. Yeah. Yeah. The right. I he's talking about is the authentic expression of the divine as embodied in each one of us, right? right? Heavenly radiance. Your soul. The, your soul. Right. The ego I that you're talking about that's right. totally obsessed with the externalities of alien things that you do not know of authentically that you worship and are drawn to, that I, right, is... Like a new jaguar? is in the way so but if the if the authentic eye fades if there's no authentic eye divinely radiant eye then there's no her know like him you can't love someone unless you're compassionate towards yourself so if i don't have that relationship to god then i can't see that in you. Right. You have to feel like you're made in the divine image. Because without that, you're not. That's a pretty serious implication. We say, oh, I'm not spiritual. You know, I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm whatever. You know, so, like it has no implications. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, Cook is saying, there are implications. When I say, I think I'm created in the divine image, that means there is a divine and it means you are too. And what does that mean? The opposite means you are not. Huh? The opposite would mean you're not. But, but what follows from, if I believe that, that every human being is an incarnation of the divine, what does that mean? There is a divine. That we're all part of the same. And what does that mean? We're all part of the divine. What does that mean? We have responsibilities. To every image of the divine. How can children starve on a planet where there's enough food if they are images of God? If I really believe that. If I don't believe that, well, it doesn't matter. I got born here. They got born there. That's a luck of the draw. Oh, well. And I'm not saying that's necessarily so. I'm just saying, Cook says... If we don't have that really true experience of I being an expression of the one, then, right, without that, I can't say you are too. But the minute I say you are too, I can't otherize you. I can't enslave you. I can't humiliate you. I can't oppress you. I can't take away your will and volition. I can't underpay you for your work. Right? There are serious implications that flow from this. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but somebody read it, but we'll finish it out. But God's anointed is the breath of our nostrils. The Messiah's greatness, glory, and might are that he does not exist outside of us. He is our breath. We seek Adonai, our God, and David, our king. We revere God and his goodness. We seek our I, 
we seek ourselves and we find. So from the book of Lamentations, there's a quote that says, God's anointed is the breath of our nostrils. God's anointed, God's Mashiach. When you think of people like Rav Cook and you think Mashiach, what do you think they're normally thinking? Mashiach, 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 you know, that the Mashiach's going to ride in on something and write as a Mashiach and son of David, and, right? It's a radical thing to say, quoting scripture, the Mashiach is the breath of our nostrils. The Mashiach's glory is that it does not exist outside of us. You would never posit that of a chassid. And here it is. You'd say sacrilege, heresy, right? Mashiach, Mashiach, there's dancing, longing for Mashiach. Here's the true teaching that we often miss. It's not outside of us. It's within us. It's within. Reconstructionism. <laughs> Hasidic reconstructionism. So, right? We seek the Mashiach. We seek our eye when we seek Mashiach. Who will be the one who announces deliverance? That the world will finally be just and equitable and changed forever, which is what Mashiach means for us, the harbinger that all that's going to be. What will ultimately be the harbinger of that? That we find our own essential, authentic I. When everyone on this planet does that, boom. Mashiach. Mashiach. The messianic age is upon us. If we can't know God, we can't see God, we can't know his name, how can we find How does my daughter find my love? She can't touch it. She can't see it. How does she find, how does she know I love her? Right? Like, there are things that are beyond the realm of seeing and knowing. They're about seeing and knowing. And the things that are important, says Rabbi Rubin, are always things of the spirit. We have tables and chairs and desks and whatever, right? But the important stuff, the really important stuff, is always in the realm of the spirit. Love, connection, sacrifice for someone you love, teaching, you know, Wisdom, all of it's about the realm of the non, you know, thingy part of. I think that's what's really um, complicated. When you think of the ego, you think of the external, the, where you, the senses are the external. And that's, you know, which is why you're saying, okay, it's, not, it's out there. When you're saying it's within, it's... Here, here it is. It doesn't say it is only within. No, Mabitam, of course not. <laughs> it's not of only not. within. And I think a lot, a lot of discussion I've heard, <coughs> particularly in Reconstructionist circles, the emphasis on godliness and God is inside of us eradicates the God outside of us as well. Right. And at least my understanding of this text is that part of what it's saying is... Maloko ha'ar is within us. Right. It's all within us as all well of reality is infused with God's presence. But it's not all within us. I remember right. one time being really upset and Rabbi Lord gave me a little silver thing with an angel on it. And she said, just hold on to this and say, be still and know that I am God. Mm -hmm. It makes me cry thinking about it. But it's like a way of remembering 
something. Like, and that's not that God is in me. God is always here no matter what's going on inside my head, no matter how upset I am. So that's, it's not that God is always in you. That would be a lot of responsibility on you, right? That's right. Kind of and, and for 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 our normative tradition, it's it's good to eat. Food is good. There's nothing. Food is wonderful. That's a material something, thinginess, right? And it's a wonderful thing to eat and be sated, and then to bless, right? We so it's not about either or. It's about do I experience the holiness and amazingness and do I sanctify my experience as an expression of the divine in relationship to my own nourishment? Do I understand the miracle of challah becoming muscle? Do I really appreciate that? That's right. That's the goal. Not to stop eating. We die if we stopped eating. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a function of ritual. That, that's why I have job security. There was some discussion before about, imp, quote, empty ritual with the implication, not the implication, but some people say ritual by its very definition is empty. Yeah. No, the issue for me is well, exactly what you said. One does have to remind oneself and part of the function of Jewish ritual, no matter how level you take it, no matter what level you take it on, is to remind us because we forget, because we're human beings and we run around. And that and is the nature distracted. of all of it, from Adam to Israel to the land to the moon. Otherwise, we're in exile, so it's constant. Yeah. No, I was going to agree with Bert, I think. <laughs> you were going to agree with Bert? No, I mean, I think all of these are spiritual tools. Mm-hmm. And they all, and the word I would use would be amuna. Either you can take it within and live it without Breathe it in and breathe it out. And so each time you walk through that door, if you touch the mezuzah, you're, you're in conscious contact with God. And if you go through that door and it's like it ain't there, then it's not there. And all of this night is a waste of time. Anyway. And so idolatry in this definition is treating God as not there, as alien to ourselves. That's all this alien, foreign, not known, strangeness, meaning it's alien to us. That means it's not here. That's idolatry. I love, love, love that interpretation of idolatry. Treating God as alien, as not close, familiar, me. Not being relevant to you. Not not being me. If 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 I don't get it that I am God, it isn't foreign or out there, then I immediately am in exile. All right, so let's, let's look at how gorgeously he closes this. So he looks at Genesis 35.2 and says, Banish all strange gods. Where are you reading? The last part of our text. Banish, we're just going to stay away from aliens and bastards, okay? We'll just move on. All right, we're just going to leave that. So banish all strange gods. If it's not in, if you don't understand it as being ultimately you, it's not God. 
Yes? If it's something completely out there and foreign, if you don't get it, then it's right here in your own heart, your own breath, your own self, then it's banish it. It's not your God, Israel. And know that I am Adonai, your God, who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Look how gorgeous this is. I am Adonai. Right? Usually, we interpret that to mean yud heh vav is saying, I am Adonai, your God. I am Adonai. What has he just done through this whole text? He's just now said, what does that mean? I am Adonai. I am Adonai who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai. When we get that, we come home. It says brings, not brought. Brings, right. It's, it's now and constantly. 100%. It's like Goten Torah. So that's a good point. Yeah. Right. So, I bring you out of Egypt all the time. I am Adonai. When we get that, that is how we address the situation of exile. That's coming home. That is ultimately how Israel comes home. We could have a whole other class on what would this mean if we were studying this text in Israel. If the Jews in Israel are studying this text, what does that mean? Right? That's a whole other conversation, which I'd love to be fly on the wall for. But it's not my conversation because I live here. But it's how we come out of exile and return and come home, which is ultimately what we long for. Existentially, the longing is always to come home. So what is it in our lives that's going to have to happen regularly for us to get that, right? I want to go to the end of Kalmanovsky, who I hope you will read if you haven't already, because it was just beautiful. Lori, read for us on page 21. Read starting at um, that search constitutes a single spiritual quest. That search constitutes a single spiritual quest whose two components are inextricable from each other. That is, we should find the well of ultimate sanctity bubbling up within our hearts and seek the divine by laying bare the true self, inscribed with God's image. And redemption comes in recognizing that the anointed redeemer, Mashiach Adonai, is none other than our own breathing spirit. He does not exist outside us. He is our breath. The painful distortions of identity will not be overcome when a distant God sends Redeemer. We will be liberated from inner alienation by recognizing the sacred character of the deep self. When you sense the redemption of the divine spirit already breathing in your own nostrils, you will already be home. The final line of Rob Cook's meditation on personhood is a master stroke. Recall that he began by citing Ezekiel to mean that the self, the I, is in exile. He concludes with reference to the Exodus, the paradigm of Jewish liberation. Having grasped the redemptive power within your own breath, 
grasping that there is no God beyond who is not, there's no God beyond who is not simultaneously within, you stand ready to understand that the alienated self is restored by realizing its divine heart. Then this knowledge sets you free. Know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai. Egypt is the paradigmatic exile for us. Bondage, slavery, controlled by an alien God, right? That is, that is not ours. It is not authentic to our experience of being created in the image of, right? All that stuff. Like, the minute we're gone from that, we're in Mitzrayim. We're in Egypt. And for the rabbis, they say, don't read Mitzrayim, because if you have no vowels in the Torah, so if you just change the vowels, but leave the letters in place, which is what happens in the Torah, there are letters there, there's not vowels. Meitzarim, the rabbis say, don't read Mitzrayim. Read Meitzarim. You are delivered from the narrow places. The tight, strangulated, someone else tells you, bound by culture and society, and whatever, right? you are released from that with, ultimate, with redemption. That's what redemption is about, is coming out of that into the open place that is always that coming home. It's a paradox, isn't it? We come home, and when we do, it's to a vast, open wilderness of wonder where we go, oh, I had no idea how tiny I am. When we come into that, we both come home and are completely awestruck and terrified. And that for me, is the amazing teaching of our tradition that both are radically true at the same time. 